Welcome to Insight, live at noon with a rebroadcast at 7 p.m. A major winter storm is bearing down on the Sierra, which can make travel dangerous or near impossible. Ahead on Insight, Caltrans joins us with the warnings and expected conditions on the road. Also, with the primary just days away, if you haven't opened your ballot, we'll have some resources so you can make an informed decision before casting your vote. Then we'll round out our conversations with the leading candidates for Senate. Representative Barbara Lee talks about how her time in Congress and life experiences set her apart and informs her approach to key issues. Finally, if you're interested in learning about the business of art, an event at Sierra College this weekend is calling all creatives who want professional development. I'm Vicki Gonzalez. That's all coming up today on Insight. But first, here's the news. From Cap Radio in Sacramento, this is Insight. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. A major storm is barreling towards Northern California, and it is forecasted to be the biggest one so far this season. The timing of the forecast spans Thursday through the weekend, and it does include a blizzard warning, making travel through the Sierra dangerous and even impossible. The National Weather Service is forecasting upwards of 10 feet of snow, and snow levels will drop to around 1,000 feet in elevation, which is the city of Auburn in Placer County, for example. Rain and thunderstorms are also forecasted throughout the valley, but it's really the Sierra that's going to take the brunt of this winter storm. Caltrans is warning drivers to be mindful, possibly stay away from the Sierra this weekend. The roads can be dangerous, chain controls, road closures likely. Joining us with an update on what to watch out for is Jeremy Linder, a public information officer with Caltrans District 3. Good afternoon, Jeremy. Good afternoon. So Caltrans District 3 covers a huge area of Northern California. If you could just quickly give listeners a visual of the district of, uh, of this size. Yeah, so it's a total of 11 counties. Sacramento and Yolo being as far south. We go all the way up to Butte and Glen County to the north and then pretty much everything east to the Nevada state line. What is the most concerning thing that Caltrans is monitoring as this storm comes through? So obviously the snow. That's going to be the biggest impact for this weekend. We have two major passes being Echo Summit on US 50, Donner Summit on I-80. 80 in particular, a major artery for the state. So it's very important and the high priority for our district to keep that open. And one of the reasons why we have as big of a snow operation along that corridor. Mm. And I know that Caltrans, I mean, you focus on road conditions. Of course, you work with meteorologists as well. From what you're hearing, how would you describe for the, the system, the winter storm that's forecasted to move through our area Thursday, really through Sunday. So it's definitely a strong storm, the strongest we've seen this season. It's the coldest. It's going to bring snowfall the lowest, like you mentioned earlier. And that's what we keep an eye out for, where normally we always see snow along Donner Summit. Our crews expect it this time of year. And then our operations work accordingly as the snow levels fluctuate. This one in particular, down to 2,000 feet, starting to see some accumulation. That's going to be some areas that our plow trucks haven't had to go that low yet. So it's just more area for us to cover, a lot more traffic to make sure we're keeping the flow and everything's moving smoothly on top of just the sheer amount. When anytime you say feet of snow, that just makes it that much more important that we stay on top of our game. And that's why our crews are prepared and ready to go. 10 feet, now that's extreme. And we start watching what Mother Nature brings us and keeping safety in mind. And if we have to, we will close the pass if the weather's too extreme. Yeah, I mean, the National Weather Service is is forecasting or putting into effect a blizzard warning, I believe, from Thursday through Saturday. What does that mean for drivers? If you can help them visualize what blizzard conditions are like. I've been in whiteout conditions as a journalist on I-80. Um, drivers should not be driving in these conditions. I mean, you would probably want them to avoid travel if at all possible. Exactly. That's our number one piece of advice for this system is if you don't have to go, don't stay home, wait for it to pass and then head up the mountain on Monday if you can. A lot of it when it comes to blizzard type conditions is think of it for those that drive in the valley often and we get the Thule fog. The visibility is a lot lower than what you typically have on a bright sunny day. That is almost similar in blizzard-like conditions, but now you have blowing snow and sometimes it's blowing right at your windshield. 
I saw previously a post from CHP Truckee up there um, that had a nice picture uh, that explained to it almost like the Star Wars hi- hyperspace. It, it had that feel just coming straight at you. And when you have that on top of the reduced or very limited visibility, it's easy to get disoriented and not know where you're going. And that's a major hazard when you're driving on the roadway. Yeah, and I-80, I mean, obviously I-80 is an interstate compared to Highway 50, um, and it's dangerous on either. But I think about Highway 50, if you're heading towards Echo Summit, I mean, those roads are windier. It's a dangerous drive if you're going to attempt it. Exactly. You only have those two lanes, one going one direction, the other the opposite. It's a little bit more It's also why the speed limit's lower in that area. It has its own challenges where 80, it's a little bit wider. But now when you start adding that snowfall, I mean, we typically could have two lanes of easy traffic flow on 80. But once you start getting several feet of snow, our drivers will do what they can to plow the road. But we may only have at least one lane open at a time, depending on those conditions and just how fast the snow rate is. And that's why the recommendation is, I mean, if you do attempt travel to have lots of supplies, you could be stuck on the interstate or on the highway for hours and hours. Exactly. And and sometimes it may not even be your fault. You could be traveling everyone there. You're doing what you're supposed to be doing. But just a couple of drivers in front of you, a couple of spin outs, it's too not safe to be able to keep that flow of traffic going while CHP clears those scenes. That's when we might hold traffic and you don't know how long that could be. Snacks come in handy. Water, especially if you have kids with you. I mean, try being in a car with a six-year-old for two hours and you're not going anywhere. It's hard to keep their attention and keep everyone happy. So that's why those emergency supplies, especially with this storm, it's very important. Also, the reason why you want to have a full tank of gas, a full charge, because if you're in one of those patterns and you run out of fuel, that now creates a much larger issue. So you just got to be ready for whatever gets thrown your way. And I know we're focusing on the the higher elevations, 2000 feet up in terms of snow, but there's rain forecasted, thunderstorms forecasted as well down in the valley. Uh, What are you watching out for? So for the valley, it's going to be your normal spots. I mean, with an inch, inch and a half of rain, it's not something we haven't seen before. So it's very typical of a spring or winter storm. Uh, Obviously, the wet roadways might have a little bit of a longer commute. The pace might be a little bit slower because the roadway could be slick. You could also see some ponding on the roadway on your normal trouble spots. Uh, But overall, it's not going to be too big of an issue. And that's very typical for these type of storms where the valley gets the minor impacts. But as soon as you change that elevation and you hit the Sierra, things quickly change. And now it's in extreme conditions. Mm. Finally, uh, drivers are going to want to stay updated on road conditions. And Caltrans, you know, has an app for that. Yes, we do. So Quick Map, that's ultimately the best tool to have look at it before you head out, constantly check it as you go throughout your travel, especially with the app. One thing uh, people need to know is hit that refresh button. If you leave the app idle, it can become stagnant. So by hitting that refresh, you know you have the most up-to-date information at your fingertips. So you know chain restrictions, if there's a closure, and you can look at the pace. I mean, it wouldn't be surprised me to see a lot of reds, yellows, uh, and oranges over the next several days across 80 and the Sierra Nevada. Yeah, I'll always get out of the app and then get back in, and you could be surprised. You know, maybe just five, ten minutes pass, and conditions could be different. Exactly. And that's especially with the app, you have the ability to have those notifications pop up. So when you do have those changes, you immediately know and you can be prepared and act accordingly. Jeremy, thank you. Thank you for having me. Jeremy Linder is the public information officer with Caltrans District 3, updating road conditions ahead of a major winter storm forecasted Thursday through the weekend. You're listening to Insight here on Cap Radio. Well, we are T-minus six days to the primary, so it's getting close to crunch time to figure out which candidates to vote for and to get your ballot in. If you need a refresher on where to look for information, where to cast your vote, we have you covered. Paula Lee is the president of the League of Women Voters of Sacramento County and joins us with some news you can use to pick your candidates and prepare to go to the polls if you want next Tuesday. Good afternoon, Paula. Good afternoon, Vicki. Thank you for making the time. So what is the League of Women Voters and what is the role that it has with elections? Well, the League is a multi-issue organization, but we are um, focused on getting out the vote and registering voters and making sure that 
that everyone who's eligible to vote is it has the opportunity to do so. How are you helping voters, you know, with this primary navigate the election process and, and, and with resources, connecting them to resources? Well, we have many resources right now uh, with, as you said, six days to go. We have a uh, voter, nonpartisan voter information website, vote411.org. And at that website, a registered voter can get their ballot and look at it if they haven't received it in the mail. But it also has information about all the candidates. We uh, provide a free resource for candidates to connect with voters and tell voters about themselves. In the past, I have made the mistake waiting to the last minute to do all of my research to fill out my ballot. And it can take a long time. Uh, if you're getting questions from from voters uh, throughout Sacramento County, what are some of the biggest questions that you're helping people navigate? Well, what voters should know now, uh, if they have not met the deadline to register to vote um, so that they could receive their ballot in the mail, they can still register to vote all, all the way to March 5th. They just need to register and vote with a provisional ballot that they can get at a vote center. And after their registration status is confirmed, their vote will still be counted. Hmm. We were talking earlier this week on Insight about voting for superior court judges, and those are local at times elected judges, as in the case for Sacramento County for this primary. Now, that's a race that people might not know much about. And I think it's important, the reason why we had the conversation, it could also be difficult to get information on candidates as well. Can you remind voters why down-ballot local elections can be just as important as voting for those bigger ticket statewide or national candidates? Oh, they're absolutely important. And in fact, many uh, decisions at the local level are made during the primary election. And a lot of voters skip the primary. We have low voter turnout usually and wait till the general. But some of the decisions that are made uh, are, for example, one of the ballot measures, Prop 1 is on this ballot. That decision will be made. And then also the local candidates for mayor, and uh, the city and county elections, any candidate that receives 50% of the vote will be elected uh, outright. So any voter that didn't participate in the primary would miss out there. So that's really important. Also, um, something that's really good to know um, in this particular election is if you are a registered voter, no party preference, not registered with a party and you see your ballot, it will not have, you will not have the ability to vote for president. And a lot of those no party preference voters are surprised when they don't see the ability to vote for president. So they should know that um, there are three parties that will still accept a ballot from them if they want to vote for president. And that's the American Independent, the Libertarian and the Democrats. And you can go to any vote center and pick up and exchange your no party preference ballot for one of those ballots if you desire to vote for president. What is your advice if there are some voters that might be hesitant to mark down a candidate if they just don't have that much information about that race, they have trouble finding information? Do you recommend that voters fill out the whole ballot or can they leave some races blank? We say, please vote, and it's not necessary to fill out your entire ballot. But there are resources, the one I mentioned, vote411.org, and also you can go to the League of Women Voters website, and on our front page, we have listed five or six links to YouTube candidate forums where you can watch the candidates be questioned, listen to their answers, and that will give you some information about those candidates as well. And that's lwvsacramento.org. And we have that link on our Insight page as well. So people have easy access just to click away. Finally, I mean, you talked about how the general election usually gets historically a higher turnout. Uh, the primary can be a challenge. And just early indications of ballot returns have indicated that turnout is going to be low 
for this primary, but there's still time. I mean, we still got six days. Uh, why mm-hmm. can you give a message of why it's important to for voters to participate in both elections? I mean, I know you talked about the importance of local races. Is it con- a concern to you that, you know, for the primary historically and possibly now that, you know, turnout may not be as robust as you want it to be? Yes, we're always concerned about that. It, it doesn't seem to change. Uh, we have some ideas uh, percolating that would uh, move some of these races to the general election so that candidates who are elected are elected with more of a mandate, with more voters. But right now, the situation is such that these decisions could be made on March 5th. And so it's very important that voters participate in this primary election and take it uh, just as seriously as November elections. Paula, thank you for the time. Sure. Thank you, Vicki. Paula Lee is the president with the League of Women Voters of Sacramento County and has been giving voters an update and a reminder of what they can still do and learn before the primary election, which is Tuesday, March 5th. Up next, we're going to round out our conversations with Senate candidates. Representative Barbara Lee joins us. You're listening to Insight on your NPR station, Cap Radio. I'm Vicki Gonzalez. Hi there. If you're enjoying Insight, we think you'll love our podcast, Blue Dot, with your host, that's me, Dave Shlom. Every week, we take a deep dive into science and nature, from the search for life beyond our pale blue dot in the vastness of space to the ecosystems we all depend on. You never know what you'll hear from the physics of Leonardo da Vinci to communications with humpback whales. Check out Blue Dot wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. You're listening to Insight here on CAP Radio. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. The race for California's Senate seat is one of the more high-profile races on the ballot. And this month, we've been sitting down with the leading candidates for Senate. We've aired conversations with Representatives Adam Schiff and Katie Porter, both Democrats, and have extended multiple invitations to Republican candidate Steve Garvey. Today, we'll listen to my conversation with Representative Barbara Lee, who is the longest-serving Congress member on the ballot. The Democrat represents Oakland and has been trailing in the polls. But that isn't stopping her in the final days to March 5th. Congresswoman Barbara Lee joins us to highlight the differences between her and the rest of the field. Representative Lee, thank you for taking the time on Insight. Yeah, glad to be with you. You, We are less than a week from the primary, and I just want to start off with recent polling. Uh, It's not the end-all be-all, but they are a useful snapshot The recent polling that we were looking at shows you and your fellow Congress member Katie Porter are trailing behind Congressman Adam Schiff, Republican newcomer Steve Garvey. How is that shaping your campaign with days left until March 5th? Sure. Thanks a lot uh, for giving me a chance to be with you. You know, uh, we're very focused on our campaign uh, and how we have organized our campaign, because what wins elections or voters voting for you, and they're only going to vote for you if they get to know you, know who you are, what you stand for, what your issues are that you've championed, what you have done already to make life better for everyone, and what you intend to do in the United States Senate. And so we have been phone banking, targeting our voters, chasing ballots, making sure our voters get to the polls. But also, uh, for those who don't know me, getting a chance to speak directly to voters about who I am, what I stand for, and what I intend to do in the United States Senate. Uh, And I'm so proud to have the endorsements of Gen Z for Change, for example, of six out of the constitutional officers of of, uh, our revolution. You know, uh, Bernie Sanders beat uh, President Biden by 10 points in California, and they're part of my campaign uh, get out to vote effort. Working Families Party. I mean, we have some phenomenal endorsers and they are trusted messengers and they are helping us get our voters to the polls so that we can be in the, in the top two. Does the polling concern you? How much stock do you give to polling, given that, I mean, you have the hindsight of, you know, 26 years being in Congress. You've, you've been through elections before. 
Sure. And I, I read the polls. I know what the polls are, who they survey, who they call. And believe you me, that's a snapshot of the day or the time that the poll was taken. The best poll I have ever seen is the poll on Election Day. And that is making sure that your voters uh, vote for you. And that involves targeting voters. And of course, uh, money drives a heck of a lot. And we don't have the establishment necessarily money, but we have money from people that uh, have historically uh, donated to me. And I've raised a lot of money over the years helping other candidates so we can grow the House majority uh, with Democrats. But uh, money drives a lot of the polls. And uh, most Voters that I've talked to have never been polled before, but our campaign is a people-powered campaign, and uh, many undecideds who were undecided once they hear from me or know my message or hear from our surrogates, they uh, come to our side to vote for me. When it comes to deciding on a candidate for the primary, uh, there are three Democrats on on the ticket and they are your colleagues in the House. We've spoken to Representative Adam Schiff and Katie Porter on the show. Uh, We have extended the offer as well to Republican Steve Garvey um, and they have not replied. But can you tell us some differences between you and the other two of your Democratic colleagues that sets you apart specifically? Sure. And it's interesting because there are more differences than there are similarities. The only similarity really are that we're all uh, Democrats, uh, myself, uh, Mr. Schiff and Ms. Porter. But uh, when you look at perspective, lived experiences, who has delivered for people, who has fought for the most vulnerable in our state. When you look at 40 million people, 20 million living one paycheck away from poverty, Lived experiences count, and I formerly was on public assistance, food stamps, Medi-Cal, finished college as a single mother with two small kids, didn't have enough money for childcare, so I had to take my kids to class with me. That's a big difference in myself and the other candidates because it's a perspective that uh, I bring, and it's being able to uh, stand by myself sometimes in terms of foreign policy. Many may or may not know, but I was the only one who voted against the authorization to use force after the horrific events of 9-11. I was the only one in this race that voted against the Iraq war. I was the only one in this race who voted uh, against the Patriot Act, which set up a system of spying on um, Americans. Uh, I've been the only one who called for a permanent ceasefire in this race. And I share that because I have a deep and broad background in national security and foreign policy, but it's a perspective of global peace and security. It's a perspective that the the lens of a woman, a black woman such as myself, brings to the Senate that no one else in this um, race brings. And it's because of the, you know, my experience as who I am, but also being able to understand the needs and aspirations of people who um, live in a state where they have to work two and three jobs, drive two and three hours to go to work uh, and just barely make it. And I've lived that and I have fought for people to have a better life. And um, so I believe that one of the big differences is that I have a very clear understanding of our national security and global peace and foreign policy issues, as well as our domestic policy. And I've led and I've gotten out there by myself, oftentimes alone, even against my own party. And it takes leadership in the Senate to be able to get the job done. I mean, as I mentioned, you've been in the House for for 26 years, since 1998, representing Oakland. And this comes at a time, I mean, you talk about being the lone vote, you know, having to be a leader or an outlier in your own party. When it comes to bipartisanship, actually getting policies passed into law, bipartisanship is strained, to say the least. How do you work across the aisle so that bills become law? How do you compromise with colleagues that you may have some strong ideological differences with? More than anyone in this race, I have have a history of working in a bipartisan way with Republicans, Democrats, independents, whomever. And you go back to my time in the California legislature when Pete Wilson, a very conservative governor, was the governor. He signed about 67 of my bills into law because I understand the nature of negotiations and I understand what people need and how to help people come to the table and have their voices heard. When you look at, uh, for instance, President Bush, I was against each and every one of his policies. 
again, voted against the authorization to use force. But when I uh, talked to him about how many people were dying of AIDS in Africa and in the United States, he worked with me. And you know all of the global AIDS uh, programs and funding that have been passed at the federal level. Those were my bills, my legislation. And he signed them into law. And to this day, we have saved 25 million lives. And I'm very proud of that. Also, when you look at the Cannabis Caucus, I helped start the Cannabis Caucus. I'm the co-chair with Republicans. And we're fighting now uh, with those who don't want to pass um, legalization uh, of cannabis because California, of course, is a state that has legalized medicinal and uh, recreational. And I've been leading on that issue with Republicans trying to get the Safe Banking Act passed. When you look at the repeal of the authorizations to use force, the Iraq authorization that I voted against and the the Afghanistan authorization, I have 40 to 50 Republicans I work with to get these authorizations repealed. When you look at who has been fighting to get um, the Pentagon audited, uh, we know there's $150 billion in waste, fraud, and abuse, taxpayer dollars. I went to a Republican and got the Republican to work with me to pass a law to require the Pentagon to be audited. Uh, the only agency that had never been audited, but guess what? They just flunked their sixth audit. So I re- work with Republicans day and night uh, to get the job done if it means delivering for people. Nobody in this race has been able to work in a bipartisan way on so many issues that have been successful other than myself. And my record is very clear on the ability to to work across the aisle when it comes to making sure I'm doing the work of the people. But when it comes to protecting our democracy, to fixing our democracy, to fighting against Donald Trump and the MAGA extremist Republicans, when it comes to our reproductive freedom and fighting to end the Hyde Amendment and to enshrine into federal law a woman's right to an abortion, when it comes to critical issues, then I don't back down. I fight for what is right. When there's common ground, then I am one of the few in the Congress, even right now, who works with Republicans to try to deliver for people in California. So with that experience that you've had of being able to reach across the aisle, I mean, as you know, comprehensive immigration reform has been elusive for decades, and you've been in Congress since 1998. I mean, it's easy to assign blame, but if elected senator, where do you see yourself being most effective with immigration? Where can you make the biggest dent? Sure, and it's not assigning blame. We had a chance when we had the House, Senate, and White House to uh, pass comprehensive immigration reform, and we didn't. And I'm not uh, attributing it blame because I, I voted for it. And so we have to, a couple of things in the filibuster, of course, in the Senate, but having been born and raised in El Paso, Texas, in an immigrant community, comprehensive immigration reform has been on the top of my list uh, of agenda items for many, many years. And what I would want to do in the Senate and what I would try to do is to try to make sure we have some comprehensive immigration reforms, but it has to be fair, it has to have due process, and it has to be orderly. And I would work with Democrats and Republicans to put forth a bill to make sure that our our dreamers have uh, a pathway to citizenship, work with Senator Padilla to make sure that after seven years, uh, immigrants would be able to get a green card automatically, and work within the framework of understanding that border uh, security without comprehensive immigration reform just won't work. And so as a person of color, as an African-American, as someone who knows the border issues and immigration uh, and, and who fought against Donald Trump, I'm well prepared to work. And if I have to work with our outside groups to bring leverage to other Republicans who who won't support reasonable pathways to citizenship for our immigrant population, then I will do that. And I believe one unique kind of uh, perspective that uh, I have is that I believe in democracy in a way that I work with our nonprofits, I work with our activists, I work with our organizations to bring to bear the voices of people within the United States House and now hopefully in the United States Mm -hmm. Senate. Another pressing issue in California is homelessness and and housing. Where do you see the federal government's role in finding a solution? The state has 
invested an unprecedented amount of funding. And I think if you ask a lot of Californians, they are not feeling the effects of that investment of that funding. What could you do as a senator to alleviate this crisis of people who are unsheltered? Again, going back to as one who understands this from a personal level, I've been unsheltered for a period of time in my life. And I know good and well that uh, what we spend our money on in terms of federal dollars, uh, we need to look at how we spend our money and what we do with our federal dollars. For example, we need to pass a national eviction prevention policy to prevent evictions. Secondly, in California, Again, the affordability crisis is extreme and successive. And people who are making minimum wage, who are low-wage workers, can't afford first and last month's rent, moving expenses, and a security deposit. So one effort I'm working on now that I would want to work on in the Senate, which is just an example, very practical kind of efforts, a deposit act where HUD would establish a revolving fund. And we have the money to do this in this country for people to access for first and last month's rent security deposit, ten to $15,000. Who in California making minimum wage can afford ten dollars or $15,000? That would solve a large portion of our crisis right there, that one small effort. Secondly, we have to invest in more uh, housing tax credits, more affordable housing units need to be built. And I would champion uh, systemic changes, such as the uh, Homelessness Act, uh, which Congresswoman Waters has introduced to create over 410,000 more um, affordable housing, but also $10 billion to invest in long-term housing for unsheltered people. And also we have to have investments so that young people, especially in working men and women, can buy homes. HUD, again, could do that if, in fact, we invested in strategies. Like when I was a young woman, my government helped me. I was able to buy a house and develop that equity, which is the only way most people can grow wealth in this country, and to being able to send my children to college and to start a small business where I employed hundreds of people. And so we have to see housing in the continuum. And also uh, the housing trust fund. We need more federal investments in the National Federal Housing Trust Fund, which I actually led on with Senator Sanders. And so there are ways to invest our tax dollars and get more for our money and making sure that the mental health services and all the support services are there for those who really need that kind of support. You just can't talk to an unsheltered person and say, you've got to get into a shelter and then leave them just alone with no job training, no mental health services, no support services. And also, we have to make sure that we don't criminalize those who are living on the streets. And one of the policies I think that's extremely important is to make sure that uh, we keep, I think 60% of the unsheltered population are people who go to jail and they should not have to go to jail. We need teams of people, mental health workers, social workers, counselors to help people. And, you know, it takes government to do this. But we need to do this differently so people don't end up in jail. And what is happening now is unconscionable. And I know we could better utilize our federal tax dollars to ensure more affordable housing and more sustainable housing for people who are low income. On the topic, you mentioned affordability and the cost of living in California being incredibly difficult. One of the more headline-grabbing um, things that, that you have said during debates or it's been brought up during debates is a $50 an hour federal minimum wage. I'd like you to expand upon that. Like, How would that make sense in, and how would that work? What I, was, what I said was this. When you look at uh, raising the minimum wage, and we're looking at a, a bill, Raise the Wage Act, that would raise the minimum wage. In Washington, this is a federal minimum raise from $7.25 to $17 by 2028. I said that I would definitely support that and try to get that signed into law. We haven't had a raise in the minimum wage in uh, over 10 years. Secondly, the minimum wage in California is $16. That is not a living wage. When you look at what is a living wage, it's documented, the data is there. For a family of four, $127,000, you're just barely making it. That's low income in many parts of California. 
So what I'm saying is as, yes, we have to raise the federal minimum wage to $17, but as we look at high cost states like California, we have to bring down the cost of living, first of all, by investing in housing and childcare, but we have to factor in affordability so that people can afford to live in California. The wage gap, wage inequality, economic inequality is growing. So you can't just leave the affordability factor off of the table when you talk about what it takes to live a decent life in California. And so $50 is not something that um, would happen overnight. I'm talking about doing the math, which I said, you do the math, 104,000 for a family of one, what does that come down to? What does it come down to 127,000 for a family of four? And so we have to just understand that in these debates and in our commitment to make things better for people, we have to get to a living wage and we have to not forget what affordability means in California because people cannot afford to stay in California because the cost of living is too high. Part of that affordability and those people are also business owners. Uh, I think about small businesses, especially in the last four years with the, the pandemic and the impacts of that that are still felt to this day. California has long been criticized for having an unattractive business climate. What could you do as senator to make California more business friendly so these business owners could succeed? First of all, I'm a former small business owner, had hundreds of employees. So I understand the investments that are needed to grow our small businesses because small businesses hire people and create economic growth. That's a given, but we are not doing enough for our small businesses. Secondly, billionaires and these corporations are making mega profits. They need to invest in their workers and in their employees. When you look at the tax structure and when you look at the fact that uh, billionaires are not paying their pair of taxes, the corporate tax rates are much too low. Investing in workers and employees will allow for businesses to grow and will allow for employees to be productive, good employees who will want to stay in California. And that is a fact. As you know, this primary or this state is a top two. And Steve Garvey, the Republican candidate, is doing relatively well, at least as polling is concerned. I know the two of you share a lot of differences, especially when it comes to politics. But why do you think he is doing relatively well in polls with with really no political experience? Well, obviously, he voted, which I asked him uh, because he mentioned it and the public understands he's voted for Donald Trump twice. And, you know, there are some who uh, in California who believe that MAGA extremist Republicans uh, who want to dismantle our democracy may be the right candidates. But I don't believe that uh, Californians, the majority of Californian voters, want a Republican who is going to support um, Donald Trump and who has supported Donald Trump. And so it's hard to imagine, uh, you know, he's a former baseball player. So, of course, he has name recognition. Uh, and uh, that more than likely is is part of it, just the name recognition. But uh, I don't think voter. I think voters are smarter than that in California. And I think experience matters. I think representation matters. And I believe voters are going to vote for someone who has delivered for them, who believes in delivering federal funds to their districts and earmarks, who believes in uh, fighting for people who have not been seen for our immigrant population and who believes in global peace and security. I don't believe the voters uh, believe in a candidate who has voted twice for Donald Trump, who has said very openly that he wants to establish uh, an autocratic government and, and a dictatorship. And, and so the voters of California are very smart. Well, uh, finally, I mean, President Trump is on the ticket to become president again. If you're elected senator and if Trump becomes president again, do you see a way where the two of you could have a productive relationship? First, I'm going to do everything I can do to make sure that he is not elected. He does not deserve to be in the White House. I am the lead plaintiff in the lawsuit to hold himself accountable. He, the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers. 
And, and so that is my first priority. Uh, next, it's important to know that uh, any president who is trying to dismantle our democracy needs to be opposed. If Donald Trump were elected, God forbid, and tried to do what he says he's going to do, I will fight every day to stop him from destroying our democracy. He is responsible for appointing Supreme Court judges, for example, for taking away our constitutional right to an abortion. He is trying to dismantle every single effort for racial and economic equity and inclusion. I will take him on on any front that needs to be taken on. And of course, if, if something, a miracle happens and he wants to work for the people, uh, then sure, I would definitely uh, engage in whatever negotiations are needed to help people. But as it stands now, his agenda is not an agenda for the American people. His agenda is to destroy our democracy and he does not deserve to be supported nor to be elected as president. Representative Lee, thank you for the time and conversation. Thank you. That was our conversation yesterday with Representative Barbara Lee. The Democrat is running for U.S. Senate. We've also had similar conversations this month with Democratic representatives Adam Schiff and Katie Porter, who are running for Senate as well. We also reached out multiple times to Republican candidate Steve Garvey's campaign, but we never heard back from them. Still ahead, an event at Sierra College this weekend is calling all artists who want professional development. Hi there. If you're enjoying Insight, we think you'll love our podcast, Blue Dot, with your host, that's me, Dave Shlom. Every week, we take a deep dive into science and nature, from the search for life beyond our pale blue dot in the vastness of space to the ecosystems we all depend on. You never know what you'll hear from the physics of Leonardo da Vinci to communications with humpback whales. Check out Blue Dot wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. You're listening to Insight here on CAP Radio. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. We're back in just a moment. Welcome back to Insight on CAP Radio. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. This weekend, artists will be heading to Sierra College in Grass Valley to learn about the business of art. The day-long event is for professional development in the creative community. It includes workshops, business planning, partnerships, legal advice, and mentoring across California. It's called the Business of Art Symposium, and it is happening Saturday, March 2nd from 8 a.m., to 5.30 p.m. Joining us is Kelly Cutler with the Truckee Cultural District and Eliza Tudor with the Executive Director with the Nevada County Arts Council. Welcome. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Vicki. Thanks so much for having us on board this afternoon. Hi, everyone from Truckee. Hello. Thank you for having us. Yes. Hello to the higher elevations. Hello to Truckee. Eliza, I want to start with you. I mean, this is an interesting symposium. Um, I would imagine there's not too many of this sort of symposium of the business of art for creatives. Why do you think that is? How did this come about? Well, we're a pretty unusual place up here in the foothills of the Sierra Nevada. I mean, as well as being the sort of heartbeat of gold country, um, you know, since at least the 1960s, we've had this growing profusion of artists and creatives and uh, culture bearers and creative industries. Um, which is why the state offered us a special designation and honor naming us as a California cultural district times two. So one up in the High Sierra, one down in, in uh, Grass Valley, Nevada City. But not only that, we increasingly find that we are drawing artists and creatives and cultural workers from other places regionally because, um, you know, an all-day symposium with incredible networking, peer support and professional development career development opportunities just isn't offered um, in more rural areas. Um, when, when we did this last at the, at the end of 2022, 
we had folks coming from all over the region and from Sacramento and Reno and beyond. So it's it's an incredible opportunity to gather and to learn together. Kelly, I mean, you're up in Truckee. What excites you about this symposium that's going to be happening on Saturday? What really excites me is that there's something for everyone. And I think that we are really speaking to the creative community with this program. But just keep in mind that the arts cross over in so many other sectors, including education, social services, public health, um, environmental, um, climate change issues. So I am going to encourage everyone to take a look at this program, whether you consider yourself to be part of the creative community or not, because I feel strongly that there is, like I said, a little something for everyone. Hmm. What session are you most looking forward to? The session that I'm really excited about is one called Getting Inside the Mind of the Curator. Um, I'm especially excited that we've got uh, Colin Perry, who's participating as curatorial assistant at the Nevada Museum of Art, uh, Frida Scott, with who's the founder and director of the Frida Scott Creative. And who doesn't want to get inside the mind of a curator? I feel like I've been looking forward to a session like this my entire career. Um, so really looking forward to some of the topics about how do curators choose the artists they work with? What are the primary considerations and what does it mean to curate one's own work? I think it's sessions like this that really provide that professional development opportunity um, within this program and help artists uh, elevate their business model. Mm. Eliza, what session are you looking forward to most? Well, I have to say, I mean, I have to call out, we have two keynote speakers this weekend. One of them is Dr. Tasha Golden, who's probably, who is the foremost authority on um, arts and, and mental health. She's the, uh, she's the directs research for the International Arts and Mind Lab at John Hopkins Medicine. Um, she's the national leader in arts and public health. She's absolutely extraordinary. She's an artist herself. So she's going to be talking a lot about trauma-informed practice. So we just heard Representative Lee speaking to so many aspects of society that are of interest and concern for all of us, whether it's our unhoused or the environment. Um, uh, Dr. Tasha Golden is very used to um, supporting artists as they create awareness for many of these solutions. And in fact, within California, we've got an incredible program rolling out right now called the California Creative Core, which is putting artists to work to um, uh, to create awareness for some of the most important issues in society. So these artists um, need support themselves. And Tasha Golden is going to be with us to, 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 to share more about how we can look after ourselves. And also, there's an emerging um, trend at the moment, an emerging movement, I should say, called social prescribing, um, which uh, she is leading the charge for. So we're going to be hearing more about that. And then, of course, we have Sean Fenton, who's absolutely cool. He's the executive director of Theatre Bay Area. You may know that we have a ton of theatre up here in the foothills um, and up in up in the High Sierra as well. Um, in fact, I think Sean has even participated in Community Asian Theatre of the Sierra Cats, which is um, an incredible theatre company locally. So he's going to be coming and doing an amazing um, keynote on what success looks like in the arts and also participating in a panel on how to ace an audition. So these guys are pretty formidable, pretty top of their game, and it'll be fun and fascinating to listen to them. Yeah, at the top of our show, we were talking about the weather. The forecast isn't great, and there is low snow that is forecasted, which means it can impact foothill communities like Nevada County. What do you want people to know about the weather and how they should prepare if they want to head up to Sierra College in Grass Valley? Well, the great thing is that because Nevada County Arts Council and our two California cultural districts are partnering with Sierra College, we're we're able to sort of piggyback on an incredible, you know, protocols from Sierra College itself. So we're meeting later with Sierra College. We're not going to be putting anyone at risk or expecting them to sort of brave the snow to get here. Um, we're all sort of looking at our weather apps and, and they're all saying slightly different things. So it's getting a little nuanced. Um, but uh, everyone's safety and enjoyment on the day is going to be our max, 
come maximum thing. We do have a reserve date. If it can't take place on Saturday, we're going to um, pull everyone together on March the 16th at Sierra College. Where we're, so we have a good backup plan. But as of this moment, we're still thinking this is going to look okay for the, the foothills. Um, but we're, we're, we're very, very mindful of the weather and we encourage everyone else to be, of course. So more to follow. I think the best thing to do is follow us on social media, um, Nevada County Arts Council, Grass Valley, Nevada City Cultural District, um, Truckee Arts Alliance. We're all posting like mad and keeping everyone um, up to, you know, up to date on, on the weather situation. But right now we're still very excited about Saturday. Oh, that's good to hear that you have a backup date. I would hate if that just got canceled and didn't move forward. It's wonderful because I can only imagine the amount of work (laughs) that it takes to put something like this on. Uh, Kelly, we just have like 30 seconds left. Um, How do you hope people feel when they leave the symposium Saturday evening? Absolutely inspired. Uh, I really think that this program is going to contribute to um, the forward creative momentum that we have in in Nevada County and and help some of our creatives uh, with their business models. And like I said, there's a little something for everyone. So uh, inspired is is how I want people to feel when they participate. Wonderful. Kelly and Eliza, thank you so much. Thank you, Vicki. Thank you for having us. Kelly Cutler is with the Truckee Cultural District, and Eliza Tudor is executive director of the Nevada County Arts Council, and they are talking about the Business of Art Symposium. It is happening this Saturday, March 2nd, at Sierra College, located in Grass Valley, from 8 a.m. to 5.30 p.m. We have more information on our Insight page. And that's it for Insight today. I'm Vicki Gonzalez. Have a great day. We'll catch you back here tomorrow. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.